Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, The Centrist Podcast. I am your host, Will Barber-Taylor. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Lauren Davison, Centre Think Tank's justice spokesperson, as well as being the policy officer for Open Labour and secretary of the Young Fabians Criminal Justice Network. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. And um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, obviously you are interested in criminal justice and have been for uh, quite a while. So what was it that um, first made you decide to study criminology as a subject? So for me, the thing that made me want to study criminology um, from quite a young age, and he won't mind me saying, I've already asked, but when I was younger, my dad had a spell in prison. Mm. So from being quite young and being aware of that fact, I started looking into sort of the issues that were affecting other families like mine. Mm. Um, And I just realised how unfair the system is, quite frankly, the justice system, and it really needed to change. Um, Mm. And that sort of dragged me closer into sort of criminology and as a discipline um but I didn't really see like within criminology a lot of people with lived experience of the justice system anyway because obviously it's entirely one thing reading about prisons it's another thing to have actually had either yourself in a prison or have a loved one who's been inside one um so yeah and that's kind of a similar reason to why I got involved with politics as well and you know I saw a system and an institution that was making things worse for working class people. And that goes for, you know, academia as a whole, not just Mm. criminology. It is dominated by sort of middle and upper class people. And I kind of got sick of, I guess, feeling like, you know, I was was from a council estate. I felt like I wasn't supposed to be in the room when big decisions were being made or where Mm. conversations were taking place. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to study criminology now because I've got to take this as far as I can because I've kind of got the mindset of if someone tells me I can't do something or I won't be able to do something, I want to do it all the more to sort of prove them wrong. And now here I am, I've got two degrees to my name, sort of six years later. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, how often do you feel uh, that the public's perception of criminology as a discipline, is informed more by television drama rather than the work of actual uh, criminologists. I mean, obviously, you get documentaries involving people who study in the field, but often um, people in, in encountering it as a, as a discipline will more often see it perhaps through uh, crime dramas, things on uh, BBC One on Netflix or whatever. So, so, so how much do you think that that influences the, the way that the public engage with criminology? It's a huge issue, um, and it's one of my biggest bugbears. Like watching, I, I can't bear anything really true crime related for that reason because I feel like it's completely, almost it dumbs down my discipline to its, you know, it sensationalizes it and it makes it kind of, you know, CSI. Like the amount of times people have asked me what I do, I've told them and they've gone, oh, was that like CSI Miami or whatever? And I'm just I'm at a stage now where people ask, I don't correct them but that is part of the issue I think because you know I think the public are used to seeing crime policy and um, solutions to crime being brought forward by politicians who often don't have a background in 
criminology. They don't hear from people with a background in expertise in criminology. Um, so, for example, things like drug policy is an obvious example of this. A criminologist would push for something very different to what a politician would push for, mm. um, because we don't have to worry about getting elected. Our prime concern is not the voters. We're mostly bothered about what works. Um, and I think that's part of it as well. Like politicians like to pretend that we don't exist because what we have to say is often very radical um, and the electorate will be like, what are you doing? So they worry on that front, but then they speak to sort of like safe options like the police, people who are uncritical of the justice system because they're reliant on things carrying on as they are. Mm. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, criminology has had a long radical tradition and we look at things very critically there is a big overlap between things like marxism and then criminology mm. because so much of our work revolves around sort of unequal power dynamics and you know i know this is a centrist think tank i wouldn't naturally class myself as a centrist mm. um but center looks at things in an evidence-based way and based on what works and for me i don't find that a lot in politics so this is why i've kind of yeah, joined the think tank, really. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and in terms of that kind of like um, not particularly uh, progressive um, attitude to the justice system that you touched upon there, I mean, the public has quite a, a conservative approach to prisons uh, and offender reform. Quite often you will see people um, saying that, you know, oh, what is needed is, is longer prison sentences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why do you think that this is the case? And how can progressives change the public's opinion relating to prison and offender reform? So I think the problem we've got is that there are some progressives and some on the left as well who have either failed to sort of argue for alternatives to what the right pushed forward mm -hmm. or they have literally just joined the right and started pushing for the policies that they've come up with. And this is how we've ended up with Labour MPs advocating for policies like the Nordic model for sex work. Mm. Um, you know, completely damaging policies that ignore evidence that it places sex workers at risk, but they carry on anyway. Mm. And, you know, we've got people that are in a party that claims to be for workers, <laughs> people that go on about supporting trade unions and they say that they care about women, completely disregarding sex worker rights. So the problem we've got is before we even look at changing public opinion, we've got battles to win in our own circles first. Hmm. So it kind of has to be done in a certain order. Like in theory, it should be easy to do, but the kinds of people that still support these harmful policies, even sort of in progressive circles, they're more, more, they're more bothered about making sort of like moralistic judgments about people than mm. harm reduction so until we can get harm reduction as like the consensus for what we should be looking to achieve i think it's going to be very difficult to convince the public otherwise um because we know with all the culture wars that go on mm. the right and the conservatives they use fear as a way of getting people to support their policy and crime is probably one of the easiest policy areas to whip up fear with and you know that's why we see Tories use emotive crimes like rape when it comes to their policies and their bills um, that's why we see things like anyone that doesn't agree with the Nordic model gets branded a pimp or mm. anyone who didn't vote for the policing and crime bill gets told that they're in support of paedophiles things like that mm. Um, so it's really countering the fear narrative that is used when they create moral panic it's really what we're up against yeah. Do you think that part of it is simply that 
um, they don't want to change their opinions on people in progressive circles and uh, supporting polit particular political um, parties because uh, they um, are afraid that if they change their opinions and change their policies, that they will lose the public and that quite often some of the motivation in terms of supporting uh, policies that you you know wouldn't expect people on uh, the left or in progressive circles to support they support simply out of a fear that if they don't support them that they won't uh, you know win elections or that they won't gain public support for other policies yeah i think so i think i personally believe that it's uh it's a way of punching down because often mm. the people that are involved in crime people that need to be protected by um laws and legislation changing um <sighs> Yeah, they, they basically, they are, they are punching down because it's an easy target because, you know, we know the public tend to believe that offenders are subhuman and they're separate classes of people, they're all mm. menaces to society, they don't deserve reform, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the majority of offenders are not serious offenders. You know, someone who's had a small amount of drugs on their person, someone who's shoplifted, are in very different leagues to someone mm. who's gone out and murdered children. It's, yeah completely different and I think people tend to conflate the two and yeah I think there is an element of that and I think people especially those who support pretty draconian laws and rules and policies tend to believe that it is an easy target because people aren't going to say anything people are just generally going to agree with them because if they if they deviate from that they're seen to then be defending these monsters mm. Yeah. In, in terms of that deviation, it's something that uh, in, in terms of the most serious criminals, uh, as, as you mentioned, they're child murderers, uh, that the public often r respond to uh, with is the death penalty, which is, of course, a very uh, contentious subject. And calls for its reintroduction have been regularly made, in, including by um, the current Home Secretary. Given that the death penalty does not cause a decrease in crimes such as murder, capital offences, and, and in fact, in some parts of the um, United States, capital states have been shown to have had a higher rate of violent crime than those that don't have the death penalty. Um, it, because of this, why do you think so many people support the death penalty? And is it worth arguing the issue to try and change people's minds, given that the death penalty has not been reintroduced in Britain and no serious attempt has been uh, successfully made to reintroduce it since abolition do you think that it's worth having that argument on the death penalty or do you think it's something that is just settled and we should look at other um issues related to criminal justice so sort of to break that down into sort of sections i think the reason people support the death penalty um more broadly because it it aligns with the sort of instinct that if you hear someone's done something horrific hmm. you know got out and murdered loads of kids or women or whatever the instinct is to be like disgusted and want I guess revenge mm. I guess that's what most people think because they think quite emotionally about it and that yeah. is something that is difficult as a criminologist you do have to kind of separate your emotion from your logic on certain things um so that, that's why I think a lot of people support it they hear it and they think well you know you deserve this you deserve to be killed in response um, do I think it's worth trying to change people's minds? I think yes, always, because as you say, we've got a Home Secretary <laughs> who has in the past said that she supports the death penalty. Mm. Um, you know, that is concerning. The way this government is going, I would not put anything past them. And that is that is a really scary place to be. Um, we've seen their most recent bills that are coming forward, the amount of lives that 
potentially could be ruined by them. Mm. I would not be surprised if an attempt is not made to bring it back and to build the resistance against that. We do need to be having those conversations with people where we can't just be complacent and assume that, you know, oh, that's an issue that was settled years ago, blah, blah, blah. Because as we know, things can... um, things can come round full circle. So we need to be prepared if they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, like I obviously don't support the death penalty because mm. it doesn't work. It doesn't actually um, reduce crime. Yeah, the person who's getting basically murdered by the state isn't going to be able to re-offend, but it doesn't actually stop causes that made them offend to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the justice system and the police in their current form and this government I believe, are institutionally racist and they're classist and much more. Now, imagine they are given the power and the responsibility for overseeing someone's life being taken away. There is no way that those powers would be applied evenly without bias, without, you know, racism. Mm. And it, it, it just doesn't sit right with me. Um, mm. Like I always say to people, because there are some people in the Labour Party, believe it or not, who do support the death penalty. Mm. Um, and as I always say to them, like, imagine the worst government you can think of. Now imagine they've got the ability to sentence people to death. It, it just does mm. not bear thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in, in terms not of the, um, the death penalty, but the um, probation service, uh, the double child murderer, Colin Pitchfork, was recently released on parole. Uh, the judge in his original trial stated that Pitchfork should never be released from prison. And his... Uh, parole was ended recently. He was recalled to prison for breaching his parole conditions. And he had some of the um, most expensive uh, parole conditions that have have been seen in terms of uh, oversight of what he was doing. So do you think that this case says something about the probation system? And what do you think it says about the probation system? And do you think it was worth the great public expense to release Pitchport? pitchfork from prison for him to return not that long after his initial release so to begin with i don't believe he ever should have been released from prison Mm -hmm. but the fact is because at the time he was sentenced i believe the mechanisms weren't in place to give him a whole life order because obviously as you know you've got the life order uh, or life like sentence then you've got the whole life order which is a lot rarer Mm -hmm. um percentage of the worst offenders get them now and I think I read somewhere that had he been sentenced at a time when they were available he probably would have had one yeah. um, but about probation I think it speaks more about the state of our prisons that mm. he spent so long in prison came out and went back so soon like if properly funded prisons could actually be doing what they're supposed to do and reform people but again this is an issue the public don't agree broadly with what they perceive as making prisons softer Mm i.e making them work um i will never slate the probation service because as an institution it has been through hell under the Mm. tories just like every other part of the justice system you know mass levels of austerity cuts ridiculous caseloads um issues with staff retention privatization that failed so badly it had to be renationalized mm. you know it is not possible to predict all reoffending otherwise reoffending levels would be zero but you know it's you have to look at the system in sequence so mm. if you have failures earlier on down the chain as you follow it on it causes backlogs and pressure elsewhere and that's what's happened with probation um 
and you mentioned his release conditions as well. Mm. They had things like um, lie detector tests in his yeah. uh, release conditions, which any criminologist really will tell you is a pseudoscience at best. Mm. Like they might be all right on the Jeremy Kyle show, but if you're <laughs> trying to stop people from coming back, you know, into prison and they just, there's no way they should be anywhere near a formalized legal process. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. Do do you think then that in in terms of the way that the public perceives things like the the lie detector, which is as you say has been um, perhaps uh, in, you know put more into the public's imagination for things like the Jeremy Kyle show, do you think more effort has to be made to point out that the lie detector really isn't reliable and and really shouldn't be seen as a as a standard for proving whether someone did something or whether someone has actually reformed or not? Yeah, I think it should be, but I think under this government, we know it won't be because mm. I say under this government, I don't know what a Labour government would be like because even they're disappointed me at the minute. Um, but there seems to be no appreciation for evidence, truth, fact, mm. what actually works. Um, and it's all about grabbing the headlines and it's all about, um, you know, even if it's giving the public a false sense of security rather than an actual tangible level of security that you can get by investing in things like the probation system, um, it's not being done. So there's, you know, the public might feel safer or they might feel that something's going to protect them. And actually it's not. And I, mm. I will never agree with that. I don't think it's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms then of uh, reform and the, and the best way to approach reforming people, uh, many Nordic nations have a different approach to crime and punishment than in the UK, with prisoners often being given greater help to reintegrate into society. Do you think we can learn much from our Northern European neighbours on how best to tackle crime and punishment? Definitely. Um, I think that is the gold standard for what we should be aiming for. It seems that this government seems to think America is what we should be aiming for. And mm. that has been a long held belief of the Conservative Party anyway, because mm. Thatcher and Reagan were having their little sort of attempts to outdo each other and, you know, all of that that went with it. Um, but yeah, to put it into perspective, for people that don't know, Norway do things, for example, very differently than we would. So in their prisons, the prisons are a lot nicer for a start. Like the best way I can describe them is they probably look closer to uh, university halls mm. than they do mm. a prison. Um, but they believe that the only thing that the only right that should be taken away when you're in prison is your liberty. Other than that, you know, inmates can still vote. They can mm. still mix with people. They can still have a job. Um, and what they do is that they phase people out of the higher security settings as their sentence progresses to try and get them to reintegrate. And that is the main point. The point is that when you've done your, when you've done your sentence, you should be able to reintegrate into society like everyone else. You don't have this whole label of offender or ex-offender over you. You're able to get back into normality and contribute to society like everybody else. And we do not do that here. Mm. Um, and it works in Norway. About 20% of prisoners within two years of release will reoffend. In the UK, that figure is about 60%. Mm. Um, and just as another sort of metric for their success, places like Norway, their prisons aren't even running at full capacity. I think they're like 75% full or something like that. So they don't actually have enough offenders to fill their prisons. Whereas here, our prisons are running at like 120%, I think. Mm. 
um, capacity, prisoners are locked up for like 23 hours a day because there aren't enough staff to monitor them. Mm. Um, the services that we provide here are absolutely ridiculous. We don't really provide any education or any sort of rehabilitation. Um, but, you know, the issue we've got, again, and this is an issue we're going to find ourselves coming back to, to copy them and to do what they're doing, there would have to be a massive cultural shift in this country. Um, and this is obviously where I find it hard to be a criminologist and a political activist because mm. the criminologist in me knows we should be doing what Norway are doing. The activist in me knows that if Labour or any party went into an election with a manifesto containing Norway-style policies for prisons, in our current society, we would be absolutely ridiculed. Mm. So yeah. there is no easy way to sort of say, yeah, let's do that, but let's actually get into government to do it first because it wouldn't it wouldn't work. We wouldn't get into power on that platform, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and another thing that um, comes up as a policy that obviously uh, criminologists uh, like yourself are in favour of, but uh, politicians are perhaps um, a bit more cautious of, is the decriminalisation of drugs. Um, and we've seen, you know, the, the changes in um, drug policy that uh, the Prime Minister and, and the Conservatives seem to be seeking to implement, including taking away um, people who have drugs, their, their passports, going through their phones and, 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 and contacting people in, 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 their, uh, in their contacts list on their phone, um, um, drug users and um, uh, people who are supplying drugs, and, and also taking um, methadone away from, from prisoners uh, in, in, in prison. In, in order to, they say, to try and get them off uh, drugs, but which, of course, will just um, cause uh, far uh, greater issues for those in, in, in prison who have um, drug addiction issues. And the, the drug policies that we're seeing seem to target working-class people and members of ethnic minorities far more harshly uh, than many middle-class uh, former drug users, including uh, the Prime Minister and many members of the Cabinet. Do you think that the attitude towards drugs and the policies that are being implemented demonstrate the hypocrisy of the system and the need for fundamental reform? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone knows how rife drug use is in politics in Westminster, mm. particularly, you know, drugs like cocaine. Um, just like in every other area of public life with this government, it is one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. Mm. This is no different. Like, the really frustrating thing is Public support for decriminalising cannabis, for example, is growing. And it's been, again, one of my biggest disappointments for the Labour Party because we should be at the forefront of the movement to decriminalise cannabis. Um, not seeing our shadow Home Secretary joining in with Tory rhetoric. Um, obviously, I sit on the Open Labour National Committee and we've been getting it right on so many justice issues. So there is appetite in the Labour Party for reform and the way that we um, have these conversations. But around 40% of the public support decriminalising weed. You've got about 51% of Labour voters supporting it as well. And then almost half of Labour MPs do. But in a progressive party, I have to question whether 51% of MPs is enough. Mm. Um, you know, looking at, because I'll talk a little bit about sort of what I'd like to see and then I'll tackle the kind of approach the Tories are taking. But... Um, personally, I'm pro-legalisation of all drugs because I think the priority has got to be harm reduction, not making judgments of people. There are many reasons people take drugs and, you know, they're not 
Some people do take it recreationally, others take it to self-medicate for other reasons. Mm. Um, but Portugal, for example, has got probably one of the best approaches to drug policy reform. In the early 2000s, they legalized drugs. Mm. And this led to things like HIV transmission reducing, drug consumption reducing, crime reducing, um, you know, health outcomes, bad health outcomes reducing. So it's part of like an evidence-based approach that the government need to be taking, um, looking at sort of like the public health model, which also would help reduce things like knife crime and serious violence. Mm. Um, because as you say, like the current system and the current policies that are being pushed out every day by the Tories, this whole idea that you can detain a drug dealer or a drug user and contact their entire phone book, it, it's actually one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Like, mm. if you take a, let's say, a county lines operation, you've got a 16-year-old boy who's been groomed into a, a gang to, to sell drugs, let's say. Mm. He's detained. The police contact his entire phone book. What happens if they contact someone higher up in the chain who then gets caught by the police who... You know who then who then protects that person when the police can't mm. when he gets accused of being a grass by the people higher up than him. So then, what's going to happen? He's going to realise he's not going to be protected. He'll start carrying a knife to retain some sort of feeling of personal safety, and then knife crime gets worse. Mm. So there's all of these unintended com- like consequences of bad policy. That's obviously just an example, but. Um, and then, you know, we've seen Dominic Raab planning to remove methadone programs from prisoners. Mm-hmm. It, there's no support for people. Like, what are they supposed to do in an entire day? Like, if you're trying to come off of serious drugs, you're sticking someone in a cell and basically forcing them to go cold turkey. Like, people are literally going to die. Mm. If he doesn't know this, he should be nowhere near the role of justice secretary. If he does mm. know this, then he's got blood on his hands because we know... Making drug use more risky and harder will not stop people from taking drugs. It will just kill them. Mm. Do, you, do you think then, I mean, in, in terms specifically of Dominic Raab, do you think it is a case that he's simply unaware of what he's doing or do you think it is just that he doesn't care? Um, to be honest with you, and it sounds awful of me to say, I really don't think he cares. I think he has lent so far into the culture war of you know criminals being undeserving of help of rehabilitation it's like when we saw grayling try and ban books in prisons mm. like there is no good reason to do it yeah. it's not going to save in like a huge amount of money all it's going to do is make prison staff's life difficult because obviously you've got to then deal with everything else that comes with that um it's going to make prisons more unsafe and it's going to cause people to die and there is no way that he doesn't know that like i'm sorry i don't mm. believe for a second that he doesn't know that but it it gets the headlines, it grabs headlines, it makes people think, oh, look, they're being tough on crime, they're being tough on addicts, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I think he knows perfectly well what he's doing, unfortunately, and that's the saddest thing of all, really. Yeah. Um, The judicial system has failed many women who have come forward to report sexual assaults and rape. What more do you think can be done to make it a fairer system to ensure greater increases in rape convictions? So I think, again, the issue goes wider than just the judicial system. Um, we can't just do what a lot of politicians do and then just promise longer sentences because what they're not looking at is that's not 
a proactive solution. What is the point in a longer sentence if the crime to be sentenced is never reported in the first place? Mm. So, you know, you have to look at sequentially again. The first hurdle is the confidence in police to come and report a crime to them. And if women and girls don't feel safe, let's say in the presence of the police, many of us don't, because there are lots of cases of officers committing crimes and often getting away with it. Mm. You know, you've got to look at building confidence in the police first. And I'm not honestly not sure how we do that because it seems like it's almost too far gone at this stage. Um, And it's, you know, one of the biggest obstacles I think is the intrusion into victims' privacy as an example. Um, they're asked often to hand over their phones and they might be left without them for a while. Um, but it's also things like the police making fewer referrals because mm. they believe that the CPS will charge fewer cases. So then it becomes a cycle where they don't do it because they know they're not going to be um, taken forward. Mm. Um, it's, it's systemic really, isn't it? You know, men commit these crimes. That's another challenge entirely. How do we stop men and boys on the whole having misogynistic attitudes. Take the double power imbalance of men with actual power, men in authority doing things like this, and it becomes an entirely harder thing to stamp out. Mm. Do you think that part of the problem is that we have these kind of like flashpoint cases, like with um, Sarah Everard, for example, where people you know, become really engaged with the issue and very vocal about the problems um, that we have. But then because of the way that uh, the news cycles work, there's a there's a great, you know, hue and cry about it. There's a great, we need to do something, we have to do something. But then it just disappears from the headlines and nothing is actually done. Do you think that that is really the, one of the core issues is that we need to kind of um, get, you know, sustained uh, press coverage of, of, of things like this, not just for a few weeks or whatever, but for a longer period that can really, you know, get, get people engaged and, and really make them say that this is completely unacceptable. We have to do something, not just say that we're going to do something. Yeah, pretty much. I agree. I think that's probably one of the biggest issues. Um, it's keeping people's interest peaked in the system um because you have to remember a lot of the time the only time people hear about justice in the the media is either when you've got like conservatives going on about serious offenders or whatever so yes yes that is a problem but i think you almost risk then oversaturation to it and people Mm. just becoming desensitized to it like you also could risk then less confidence in the system the more you hear about its failings i know you do need to be honest about its failings but you know if you're going to hear people talk about how bad the justice system is how it's failing completely how it's not doing anything it's supposed to like we were just talking about confidence in the police for example and confidence Mm. in the judicial process if you're a woman who's experienced you know a serious sexual assault what's that going to do to your confidence levels coming forward to report a crime? So it's, it's, there's a two-sided thing. So for some things, I think it might be more helpful to have that sustained pressure. Or for other things, I think it might almost go the other way. Mm, yeah. Um, in recent years, we've seen cutting legal aid. We've seen cuts in legal aid. We've seen a horrendous case backlog exacerbated by the pandemic. 
Um, we've seen courts quite literally falling apart. We've, we've, we've seen cases of, of juries having to leave courtrooms because they're not fit for use, because they aren't actually safe to continue the, the, the proceedings. Why do you think we have not seen greater condemnation of the government's utter failure to solve the many issues consuming the judicial system, despite having run it for 10 years? Why do you think there isn't greater uh, outcry at the, at the sheer um, complete and utter almost collapse of the judicial system? I, I mean, you might have sort of like partly answered it in response to the last question, but <laughs> it, it just astonishes me. You know, why are we not <laughs> hearing more about just how how much the system is, is is just falling to pieces. So I think we've had, you know, as you say, we've had, you know, nearly 11 years of austerity that has absolutely decimated the judicial system, case backlogs, and like you say, all of the issues that you've mentioned. Um, I would like to give some credit to David Lammy as Shadow Justice Act, because I think he's done a fantastic job at talking about these issues. He hasn't always had the coverage that he's needed to have, and you can't just have one person... Um, talking about this in a party, but I think yeah. Labour has also failed to highlight it, maybe before Lamy. Um, but I think many of the issues that are involved with the courts, things like legal aid, are still seen as something that offenders get rather than people that maybe are victims of crime because they mm. do get legal aid as well. Yeah. We saw recently, I can't remember who it was, I think it might have been Colin Pitchfork, it, or it may have been said, no, it was Sarah Everard's murderer, mm. um, Wayne, Wayne Cousins. Mm -hmm. He was given legal aid, and the Daily Mail ran a massive story about it, saying how much of an outrage it was, and people were fuming about it, failing to realise that actually, if he was not given proper legal representation, the case may have seen him get a diminished sentence, for example. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lack of understanding there, because um, people see things like cuts in legal aid and they think, oh, good, well, that means that, you know, murderers aren't getting public money to be helped. It's seen as peripheral because a lot of people don't consider it an issue that affects them because they don't see themselves as offenders. They don't want to believe that they'll be a victim. So they think, well, you know, it's not going to really affect me, is it? Mm. Um, but I think as well, baseline confidence and trust in the justice process isn't very high anyway because how often do we see people get a sentence or something and then the comments are just full of people going well oh you know life should mean life or our system is failing because they haven't had a longer sentence people hear stories of it failing they're not surprised by it anymore mm. um so there tends to be a fairly sort of muted response from people and to be honest i mean it's difficult for labor to say anything because for a a variety of reasons some of them were completely different the justice system wasn't in a great state when we were in power either so it's hard for us to say anything because i think we would get a lot of flack back from it mm. um in in terms of the privatization of prisons um which in most cases have been proven to be a disaster um what do you think can be done to fix the prison system that doesn't involve private industry? Or do you think that it's now impossible to divide uh, private industry from the prison system? Yeah, I don't think there should be a single iota of uh, privatisation in the prison system because mm. we've seen, like you said, private prisons completely fail. Um, HMB Birmingham, I believe it was, had to be renationalised after mm. it got privatised. Uh, beyond, you know, your operational reasons for banning privatisation in prisons. For me, it's about ethics. So private companies shouldn't be allowed to profit from taking away the liberty of 
citizens basically you know there should not be a profit motive placed mm. on an institution that exists yeah. to lock people up just like you know it shouldn't be on our healthcare or our education system these are public services that provide a function um and they should be placed under the accountability that only the government can have you know mm. the government is far more accountable to the people than a private company which has only got a responsibility to its shareholders so i think Johnson is planning to spend two and a half billion pound um, to make more prison places. Mm. Rather than building more prisons, which will probably be privatised and probably have a lot of private sector involvement, um, the best way to sort of improve our prisons would be to spend that money on things like better education, better, um, you know, rehabilitative measures, the chance to learn skills, employment support, all of these things that can maximise someone's chances of staying away from crime in the future, but yet they're just funneling more money in so they can make more places. And the evidence tells us, the criminological evidence tells us that if you build more prison places, it doesn't mean that there's more criminals or more crime. It means that literally lower level offenders will be sort of rafted in to fill those spaces. It's like a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, throughout this podcast, we've obviously been discussing quite um, serious things to do with the criminal justice uh, system, but I'd like to end on a slightly uh, lighter note because we're coming towards Christmas. It's a time of, um, you know, presents and, and, and people wanting to, to, to celebrate uh, uh, life and, and one another's uh, company. So uh, if you had to buy a Christmas present for the Justice Secretary and the Shadow Justice Secretary, uh, what presents would you buy for each of them? Um, what would I get Dominic Raab? I think Dominic Raab, I would probably buy him... You can't buy compassion, can you? But I think he probably needs it. Um, I think Steve Reed. I would buy him a copy of the Lamy Review because I think we need to ensure that everything that was found in that review and recommended gets followed through and is central to Labour's justice policy going forward. Mm. What I would get him just to make sure that he carries on the work of his predecessor. Excellent. I think those are two um, great answers and hopefully um, more people will be getting uh, Dominic Raab some compassion as a Christmas present. Uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Lauren. If people want to find out more about you and more about the things that you're involved with, uh, where should they go to find out more about you? Follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is L underscore D1995X. Very imaginative name. Um, and yeah, just there really. I think everything I do kind of stems off of that. So it's yeah easier to follow me there. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to have you. Thank you again for coming on the podcast.